The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The body that determines whether any of this is constitutional would be the constitutional court, who decides whether or not actions that are taken are constitutional. That body doesn't exist in Tunisia. There's been, over the years since the Constitution was written in 2014, all sorts of political infighting that's prevented the constitutional court from being formed, prevented Parliament from agreeing on the nominees that they want to put forward for the court. And then in the end, just a few months ago, Parliament did finally come to agreement on their nominees and President Said said, time's up, it's too late, I'm not going to sign off on this court. So there is no constitutional court. And this is where things get a little bit tricky. You know, these emergency decrees he's put in place are supposed to last for 30 days, at which point the constitutional court can determine whether or not the situation has changed such that the emergency measure should be lifted. With no constitutional court, it's not clear that there's any power that will be able to prevent him from extending these measures indefinitely. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for July 30th, 2021. For the past decade, Tunisia's democracy has stood out as one of the few remaining bright spots of the Arab Spring. But earlier this week, it entered its own crisis as President Kais Saeed declared a state of emergency, suspended parliament, and stated his intent to move forward with widespread prosecutions as part of a long-promised anti-corruption effort. Some argue that Saeed's strong-arm tactics are exactly what's needed to break the stagnation that's been plaguing Tunisia's economic and political systems. But others fear that it may be the beginning of the end for Tunisian democracy as we know it. To discuss these developments, I sat down with Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and expert on Tunisia. We discussed the context for Saeed's actions, how other actors in Tunisia and the region have reacted, and what the international community can and should do about it. It's the Lawfare podcast for July 30th. Sarah Yerkes on Tunisia's democracy in crisis. So Sarah, Tunisia is a unique historical case in a lot of ways. It is really the one state that emerged from the Arab Spring of early in the last decade into what has thus far looked to be a fairly functional democracy with competitive politics, political parties, and things along those lines. But nonetheless, it has faced more than its fair share of challenges, and particularly in recent years. Give us a sense of the state of the Tunisian body politic in the months and weeks leading up to this most recent crisis? Sure. Well, I think this is a really important question because the idea that this political crisis started 
with President Said's moves is just not accurate. You know, the the political challenges, the issues that brought about this, the need, according to the president, to take emergency measures have been boiling for pretty much since the 2019 elections that brought in this government in the first place. And so what we saw was these elections brought in the most fractured parliament in Tunisia's history, where the largest party, which is the Islamist party in Nahda, only held about a quarter of the seats in the parliament. And the rest of the seats were split up between a variety of parties, including the introduction for the first time of two kind of extremist parties on either end. On the one hand, you have the Karama coalition, who is a Salafist party who is you know, to the right of Anahda. And then on the other side, you have the party led by Abir Musi, which is the free Destorian party that's calling for the return of the Ben Ali era, making the argument that democracy has not worked for Tunisia. So you start off right away in the end of 2019 when parliament takes its seat with this really polarized environment. Then you throw on top of that the president, President Said, who himself was an outsider. He was elected without a political party, without any sort of real political experience, and came in as a disruptor. He kind of came in, Tunisia kind of came to the populist wave that swept the globe a little bit late, but he really represented what we've seen across the globe, including, you know, President Trump in the United States and others in Europe, as someone that the people wanted, they wanted change. They wanted an outsider, and he was elected with overwhelming support. And then finally, you add in the prime minister, Prime Minister Hashem Mashishi, who was actually handpicked by the president to kind of be his lackey in a way. He's also a technocrat, was not supposed to be politically affiliated. But right from the start, when he was brought in in September of 2020, Mashishi and President Saeed just clashed. They've been actively undermining each other left and right, really making it very difficult for anything to get accomplished. So this is just kind of the scene setter of you know what the situation was like as we came on to the situation that started to unfold over the weekend. The person really at the center of this crisis is the president, Kais Saeed, who you mentioned before, is a, is a pretty unique political figure coming into the scene as president without a political background, without clear political support, yet winning an overwhelming, I think, in the 70 percentile, somewhere around their electoral win in the 2019 elections. Tell us about him. Who is he? Where does he come from? And how does he fit into this political picture? Yes, President Said was a political outsider. He was not someone for which a lot was known about because he is not uh, traditionally from the political system. He's a constitutional law professor. His nickname is RoboCop. So what this means is that he's someone who was seen as kind of very stiff. He has this very kind of strict manner of when he speaks in Arabic, he comes off, you know, not as kind of warm and fuzzy, but was really respected by the people who elected him as someone who was going to tackle corruption. Tunisia has suffered from endemic corruption under the Ben Ali era, but that corruption really has not been addressed in the decade since the revolution. And so, you know, the one thing that we really knew about him when he came to power was that he wanted to tackle corruption, and that was his main campaign issue. Uh, that's obviously not easy to do. He has not so far had a lot of success. But what we've seen, you know, as we've seen the situation unfold in Tunisia, is that this is one of the pinnacles of what he's trying to do. He has said he wants to personally preside over the trials of many members of parliament who he believes are corrupt. He wants to really kind of move forward in prosecuting some of the business community who he thinks are corrupt. And so the corruption is the main thing that we know about him. What we also know about him is that he is very much against the current division of power. 
And so again, when he decided to consolidate power into his own hands, this was not really a surprise. He's kind of been forecasting this for some time that he believes that the parliamentary system doesn't work for Tunisia. He wants Tunisia to return to a presidential system. He's floated the idea of returning to the original 1956 constitution. And so we've seen that he has, you know, he approaches politics differently than Tunisia's previous presidents. Now, describe for us a little bit what it is exactly he has done to precipitate this most recent crisis. And I'm curious, particularly, and particularly because these sorts of issues tend to be of interest to a lawfare audience, what his legal argument is, because he's got an argument about why what he's doing is consistent with Tunisia's constitution. Isn't that correct? Yes. So what he has done is he has said under Article 80 of the Constitution, which is you know, one of the constitutional articles, that he has the power as the president to enact emergency measures. And the article is actually quite vague. I mean, it does say that the president in exceptional circumstances under imminent threat to the country can take any necessary measures. So that leaves it pretty wide open of what he is allowed to do. However, when you look at the full text of the article, there's a couple of things that he is required to do as part of that. First of all, before issuing, before invoking Article 80, he is supposed to consult with the prime minister and the speaker of parliament. Now, they are saying that he has not done that. He says he did before he made his declaration. They say he has not. The other piece of this that's really important is that he is supposed to then When he makes this declaration, parliament is considered to be in a continuous session. And the idea here is, you know, balance of power, division of power, that while the president is undertaking emergency measures, the parliament is acting and is still able to be a check on power. What President Saeed did was the opposite, where he decided to freeze parliament for 30 days and said that while these emergency measures are in place, parliament is not going to operate. And this was directly tested when after he announced this, the Speaker of Parliament, Rashid Ghanoushi, as well as some other members of parliament, tried to just enter the parliament building to kind of test whether or not this was actually happening. And they were held back by the military who refused to let them enter the parliament building. So I think it's pretty clear that while Saeed is saying that he is his actions are backed up by law, at the very least, this idea that parliament is in a continuous session, that's not happening. Now, the big kicker to all of this is that the body that determines whether any of this is constitutional would be the constitutional court. It's kind of the equivalent of the United States Supreme Court, who decides whether or not actions that are taken are constitutional. That body doesn't exist in Tunisia. There's been, over the years since the constitution was written in 2014, all sorts of political infighting that's prevented the constitutional court from being formed, prevented parliament from agreeing on the nominees that they want to put forward for the court. And then in the end, just a few months ago, Parliament did finally come to agreement on their nominees. And President Said said, time's up. It's too late. I'm not going to sign off on this court. So there is no constitutional court. And this is where things get a little bit tricky. You know, these emergency decrees he's put in place are supposed to last for 30 days, at which point the constitutional court can determine whether or not the situation has changed such that the emergency measure should be lifted. With no constitutional court, it's not clear that there's any body, that there's any power that will be able to prevent him from extending these measures indefinitely. 
You mentioned the role that the military or security forces played, have played in this so far, at least, in going along with Saeed's initiative to shut down parliament, keeping people out of the building, keeping it from convening. How have they fit into the broader picture? Where is Saeed's support coming from? In the absence of the a constitutional court, in, in some ways, it kind of falls to the different institutions of government to determine which side is has the better side of the legal argument. Has so far his authority as president been what's carrying through the execution of this effort, or is it rooted in some other political relationships that he has to other political factions or other elements within the government that are allowing him to execute this? Um, he's not a former member of the military, to my knowledge, which is you know the stereotypical coup situation where you have somebody claiming to command the military and using that authority to to implement his will. So so what is giving him the tools to take such an extraordinary step? First of all, the main thing that is allowing him to move forward with a lot of confidence is popular support. And so what's been really interesting is to see how Tunisian society has kind of divided along whether or not they're supporting what he's doing or whether or not they're angry at what he's doing. And this is largely divided along political lines where you are seeing certainly the members of Anahda and Anahda supporters, but also other political parties, including Kalb Tunis, which is the party of Nabil Karwi, who is the candidate that ran against Said for president. So not really surprising that he would be going against President Said's actions. And then a couple of other smaller parties who have formed a sort of mini coalition to say very vocally, this is a coup, this is illegal and all of that. But aside from them, you know, most of Tunisian society so far is backing the president. And what we're seeing is that I think, you know, Tunisians, given the the way that the pandemic has just ravaged the country, the way the economy has been sort of in free fall over the past year, Tunisians are angry, they're frustrated, they want to see change. They see Said as someone who's coming in and taking the reins and taking decisive action. And so I think a lot of people, even people who might believe that what he's doing is illegal, or at least is anti-democratic, they're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for at least this 30-day period. And so one of the really important actors here has been um, the civil society groups. And what we've seen is that the UJTT, who is the main labor union, the general labor union of Tunisian workers, as well as some of the other major civil society groups that have a pretty powerful voice in Tunisia, like the Association of Journalists, the Human Rights League, these groups have come together and said that they want to have a national dialogue they want to come and come up with a roadmap of how Tunisia can move forward. And at this point, they're kind of in this wait and see mode with Said as well to say they don't like everything he's done, but they're not calling it a coup. And they're willing to kind of work with him to hope that he can help get Tunisia back on track. Now, going back to the military, which was what you originally asked about, you know, the military is a really interesting actor in Tunisia, especially when we look at the rest of the Arab world. The Tunisian military has largely been apolitical. They've stayed out of politics for the vast majority of Tunisian history. There were some you know, attempts at kind of politicizing the military during the revolution, but those didn't pan out. And what we've seen so far is that the military seems to still be trying to stay out of politics. You know, I mentioned how the military had prevented the Speaker of Parliament from entering Parliament. I don't think that was a political move. I actually think it was intentionally an apolitical move, that had they let the Speaker of Parliament in define the president's orders, 
that would have been seen as a political move. So they're in a tough position where, you know, by just kind of blanketly supporting the president, that can be seen as political. But by going against him, that's certainly political as well. But I think, you know, the military is the really crucial actor to watch here if they start to shift either direction, if they start to defy the president's orders, or if he starts to try to instrumentalize them. And he has, I mean, he's, he's tried to kind of hold up his position as, as head of the military as, you know, one of the things that's, that's enabling him to keep going forward. But so far, I think they've relatively maintained their position as apolitical. Although again, that's, that's kind of the canary in the coal mine. If, if the military turns in either direction, I think that'll be a really important signal to watch out for. I want to come back to one of the other groups involved in this political debate that you've already mentioned, but that plays a pretty prominent role in recent Tunisian history and Tunisian political scene. And that's Inata, a party that has kind of, I think it's fair to say, been at kind of the gravamen of Tunisian political discourse and dialogue for a lot of the post-revolution period. And particularly Rashid Ghanouchi, who is the head of the Ahnata party, speaker of the parliament, as you mentioned, but as I understand it, is also a leading kind of political theorist and Islamic thinker that has kind of tried to reconcile Ahnata's Islamic beliefs, religious beliefs with a model of popular democracy uh, in a way that is both palatable to international audiences that reinforces democratic norms and values, and has done so by by many accounts with some success. But this seems like a pretty major rebuke of Anada and the role that they've played in the post-revolution period, not just and perhaps with Renucci himself. How do they fit into this picture? How are they responding? And what does this mean for their their sort of legacy? Yeah, Anada is clearly the main opposition force to what Said is doing. And I think, you know, in part because they truly believe that what he's doing is is anti-democratic, but also because they've become the main target of of the popular dissatisfaction. I mean, Anahta has been a major part of all of the post-revolutionary governments. And in this past government, I mean, as I mentioned before, they only hold about 25% of the seats in parliament, but they're still the largest party. And so the speaker of the parliament is Ranushi from from Anahta, you know, they're kind of the most visible party when it comes to the current government. And they've been at odds with President Said from the beginning. There's been a lot of clashes over a variety of issues. So Anahta here has a tremendous amount to lose and not, frankly, a lot to gain. What we've seen that's been, I think, a little bit surprising is kind of the level of public vitriol against Anahta once all of this started to play out. Now, certainly a lot of the Tunisian public wasn't really happy with Anahta before, but it's as if Said's moves made it publicly acceptable for people to just go after Anahta, primarily on social media. There's been a lot of just really angry people who, you know, before may have felt that they weren't happy with him, but didn't have the maybe the confidence to kind of go out and, and express that in such a public and angry and kind of ugly manner, I would say. So for Anahta, the big question is, yeah, what's its future? What does the next government look like? Will Anahta be a part of it at all? And I do think it's an important moment for Anahta to step back and say, what did we do wrong? You know, how can we make ourselves more appealing to the Tunisian public? You know, in each subsequent election, they lost a pretty dramatic number of seats. They came in in the first election in 2011 with definitely the plurality of seats and and really 
by far the largest number. So the question is, you know, do they change their tactics? There's been calls to remove Lanushi from the head of Nahta. You know, he's in his 80s. They, people think he should retire and let some younger folks take charge. And I don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, they're certainly right now trying to figure out their next steps. Uh, but the question goes back to, you know, will they be blamed for all of this, for all of the trouble, for the ineffectiveness of the government? When again, they were just one small party in the government. Certainly they are to blame for some things, but it's not just Anata's fault. There's a lot of all the other political parties that were in there weren't able to accomplish anything either. And no Tunisian government has been able to root out corruption, has been able to tackle the economic crisis and the challenges that a country has faced since the revolution. So I think it is quite misplaced to fully put all the blame on Anata. While certainly they do have some of the blame, they're not the only ones. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So Khanouchi has suggested that he and Ahnahda are forming, along with other parties in parliament, a national front to oppose this most recent action. What does that actually look like in practice? Do we have a sense about how united a front he will be able to assemble in opposition to President Saeed? And what will it be able to do? Do we have a sense of that? Is it simply a mechanism for political or an organization and mobilization? Or are there institutional levers that they have to put pressure back against the president in this 30-day period, or perhaps after this 30-day period, if the president seeks to continue it somehow? So I think there's a couple of important things that Anahta and the other parties that have joined with Anahta, most notably called Tunis, could do. So on the one hand, again, these are the parties that have traditionally been against President Saeed. So the challenge is to make this about Tunisian democracy and not just kind of a personal attack against President Saeed, with whom they have been fighting for a year and a half. So one of the things that's really important is that, you know, parliament, again, is supposed to be continuously functioning. It's clearly not at the moment, but there have been discussions about, you know, sort of having parliament convene outside of the parliament bill. If they're not allowed to get into the parliament building, that doesn't mean parliament can't still convene. I mean, it's pretty clear that the president does not have the authority to actually freeze parliament the way that he has. So that's that's one potential tactic to say, fine, you don't want to let us in the building. We're going to meet at this other place or we're going to meet virtually something and we're going to try to pass legislation or issue our own decrees or do something to try to continue that institution to have that keep functioning. That could be within this 30-day period, or it's potential they could say, okay, we'll wait the 30 days, but on you know the day after, on day 31, parliament is back, whether you like it or not, that's legally what's supposed to happen. 
The other piece of this is, you know, there's a good chance that this whole situation is going to lead to new elections. And so the question is, do that, does President Said actually try to dissolve parliament permanently? Does he try to get rid of that institution through a constitutional referendum, which is a possibility? And if that's the case, then obviously you wouldn't have parliamentary elections again. But there would be the potential for new presidential elections or if they create some other sort of consultative body, whatever that might look like. I mean, there is the real the possibility of Anatta trying to again, have kind of a a moment of introspection to figure out what does it want to look like? What's the next phase for Anahda? Who are its allies? Who can it work with to try to actually regain some sort of power, some sort of force within the Tunisian political landscape? And since we just don't really know yet what the institutional landscape will look like, what institutions will survive, which ones won't, it's hard to make those decisions right now. But that's certainly some of the thinking that's going on, I'm guessing, within Anahda. So President Saeed seems like, at least for the moment, he has a window to implement this anti-corruption campaign he's been promising for several years. What has it looked like so far a few days in? What has he telegraphed he's intending to do during this period that he couldn't accomplish while Parliament was sitting? And what steps has he taken in that direction? So the main thing that the president has telegraphed that he wants to do, and he's been very clear about this, is that he wants to personally oversee the trials of members of parliament. Now, there certainly are members of parliament who I'm sure are guilty of some acts of corruption, but it seems like this is more of a political move than an actual legal move that President Said is trying to put forward. You know, of course, like having trials, bringing people to account, there is a whole court system that's dedicated to fighting corruption. There's an anti-corruption body that is affiliated with the government, but is independent, that is supposed to be doing the investigation of all these sorts of things. They should be acting. They should be doing their work. They are the ones who are supposed to be in charge of this. It's not supposed to be directly in the president's hands. Now, there's nothing wrong with the president you know, saying that he thinks these people are corrupt and he wants them to face the judicial system. But for him to say, you know, I'm judge, jury, and executioner, that's not really how this can or should work. That in itself, frankly, is corrupt. And so it's not clear what he, you know, by taking this action of consolidating power into his own hands, what power he now has that he didn't have before, other than what I just mentioned, which is to personally oversee the trials of his political opponents. Uh, As far as the other types of corruption, you know, the business community, again, you know, there was nothing really preventing him from pushing for those sorts of investigations and trials and working with the Anti-Corruption Commission to make sure that folks were being held accountable. I mean, that all was happening, maybe at a slower pace than he would like. But the other part of this, which is kind of the endemic, the petty corruption, the sort of the idea that to get anything done in the bureaucracy, you really need to, to be involved in corruption. I mean, that's not something that he individually can do. There, you know, I applaud him for wanting to try to root that out and to trying to address some of these issues that really are hampering Tunisia's ability to improve economically. But again, I'm hard pressed to find something that he himself, without a functioning government and a functioning parliament, would be able to do to actually get at that corruption. So this crisis in Tunisia is notable in part because it doesn't just have ramifications and significance, symbolic and otherwise, in Tunisia. It also has 
ramifications and is seen by other folks as as a significant move outside of Tunisia in the broader region. In particular, because it's become, it seems to me at least, like it's become another one of these flashpoints in what is kind of one of the major fault lines in the region, although one that I think Western audiences often aren't as sensitive or aware of, which is the divide over political Islam and the role of Islamic parties in democracies and electoral democracies in the Middle East. So how have we seen the states that are involved in that debate, particularly, you know, we tend to think of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE on one side, very skeptical and critical of political Islam, actively opposing it in a variety of theaters, and then perhaps Turkey being a leading country on the other, in part because it's led by a party that reflects political uh, Islam and incorporates it into its kind of party ideology. How have they reacted to this? How has this been played into the debate between those two sides? And to what extent have they been involved in any of these developments, to the extent we're aware of? Certainly, we've seen some allegations that the UAE and other states were somehow involved with President Saeed's uh, move. Is there any evidence of that or reason to believe that might be the case? The role of the other Arab states is really important in what's happening now and what may happen in the future in Tunisia. You know, up until maybe a year ago, Tunisia actually was pretty much exempt from most of the interference that we've seen by the various Gulf states, by Turkey and Egypt as well. We've seen this obviously play out in a lot of other places, including next door in Libya to to the extreme. But Tunisia, for the most part, had been able to largely avoid that sort of interference, although certainly Arab states were interested in either the success or failure of Tunisia's democratic experiment. Um, But what we're seeing now, I mean, there's all sorts of rumors, as you alluded to, that perhaps the side that's against political Islam, that UAE, Egypt, Saudi potentially were in consultation with President Saeed. I mean, he's there's certainly no question he's been engaged with those countries and has close relationships with those countries. The question is, you know, did they did he consult with them about his potential moves or not? We don't know. That's all at this point we don't have any sort of real data on that. And on the other side, you know, not surprisingly, the strongest voice against Saeed's moves globally has been Turkey, who has, you know, really has called this a coup and said that it's anti-democratic and that with sides actions, you know, are, are, are unlawful. So we're certainly seeing rhetorically the two, this kind of proxy battle play out over the role of political Islam in Tunisia. But again, it's, it's, this started a little bit before this conflict. I think the big question is going to be, depending on which scenario moves forward, which path Saeed takes, is he providing an opening for more influence by the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt in Tunisia to the detriment of Tunisia's democratic transition, you know, or is he going to be able to kind of keep those interests at bay? One of the things he, one of the allegations of corruption that he's really put forward is foreign influence and foreign funding of political parties. What this means is, you know, is Qatar funding Anahda, among other allegations. So he's clearly going to be very careful about any appearance of influence by these other countries. And I don't think he's, you know, sitting there waiting for pots of money at this point from UAE or Saudi Arabia. But, you know, should things go south and and he be in desperate situation, I wouldn't be surprised if we did start to see an influx of cash from the Gulf. Of course, the Gulf states, the other states in the region, aren't the only ones that have a vested interest in Tunisia and the direction it goes politically, 
the United States has provided a substantial amount of foreign assistance to Tunisia over the years, has provided at least rhetorical support and beyond rhetorical support as well for Tunisian democracy at various stages, as have European allies and a number of other states. How have they responded to this latest action and, and what sort of policy responses seem to be might, like they might be headed down the pike now that we're a few days in? So far, the West, the United States, and Europe um, have largely been pretty benign in their response to this. I think it's fair to say that that the West is in a kind of wait-and-see mode. They want to see where a site is going. Um, we've heard from the U.S., for example, that they don't want to alienate their relationship with President Said, which is understandable. So they've, you know, all come out with these kind of blah statements of, you know, we're engaged, we're watching, and we want Tunisia to remain democratic. But there hasn't been much more than that. And so, you know, I think at this point, uh, we shouldn't expect to see much of a change in that approach. I think the wait and see approach is fair until we start to get a better sense of what Said is doing. Now, if you look at all the steps he's taken, you know, we've talked about the consolidation of power, but he's also had some really kind of frightening uh, pushback against the media where you had the the police storm, the Al Jazeera offices, there were reports yesterday that the New York Times journalist Vivian Yi was detained, you know, things like that, that to me are not a good sign that he is heading towards a return to democracy. But again, it's, it's still very early. So, you know, I think, again, the West is probably waiting things out a little bit. I mean, there are various things they could do. I mean, you have a lot of leverage from Europe in particular, where they can try to pressure Saeed to stay the path of democracy, to maybe allow parliament to operate while he's undertaking these emergency measures. That would be a good start. Or to announce his roadmap tomorrow, to appoint a prime minister tomorrow. You know, things that, you know, would be clear indications that he is planning to return Tunisia to democracy. Again, I think though that would be very much in the interest of of Tunisians and would help Tunisia to keep moving forward and to address the challenges that it has right now. In your view, as an expert in this issue set, as somebody who's worked for the United States government, what approach should the Biden administration be taking to this challenge? Wait and see might might work for now, but what are the warning signs it needs to be looking for? And what should its objective be in managing its relationship with Tunisia through the course of this crisis? Is it necessary to end this action, restrict this action? The focus need to be on preventing excesses by Saeed, uh, like crackdowns on the media or or major steps back in regards to civil liberties. What should the priority be and how do you balance the different interests that are at stake here? So I certainly think that the U.S. government is and should be paying really close attention to some of the warning signs, some of the red flags, the approach towards the media that I mentioned before, the potential for the military to become politicized. That's another big one. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of statements by human rights organizations on that, you know, this is just, none of these are good signs that the path, the signals that we're seeing so far, again, do not point towards democracy or frankly to stability. And I think this is a really important point that you know, a lot of the people who are supporting Saeed believe that by taking on these extraordinary measures, these anti-democratic measures, that this is going to be what's best for governance in Tunisia. But the fact of the matter is that 
good governance comes about from good governance. It doesn't come about from hijacking the political process and from adopting anti-democratic measures, cracking down against opposition. You know, so I think from the United States perspective, they are certainly paying attention to what are these measures that Said is taking. You know, and then practically, when you look at, again, some of the leverage that the United States has, one of the biggest things right now is the Millennium Challenge Corporation Compact that was just signed in Tunisia. This is about a $500 million compact that helps Tunisia with development assistance to help improve the economy. Now that, the Millennium Challenge, the whole premise of this is reward, kind of the more for more principle, that if you meet certain criteria, including economic criteria, but also political democratic criteria, you become eligible to receive one of these very large compacts. Now, if you look at the language of the criteria that Tunisia and every other country has to meet in order to receive this, that includes very clear rule of law characteristics, including an independent judiciary, which if the president's saying he is the public prosecutor, that doesn't exist. Um, you know, there's other factors that go into that that, you know, would make Tunisia ineligible to receive this money. So it's not just about punitive action. It's about legal action of like what could actually happen if if President Saeed doesn't return Tunisia to democracy after this 30 day period. And, you know, the other piece of this that I think is important to mention is the idea, the term coup, which, you know, is getting hotly debated. I don't think we should expect the United States to determine that this is a coup. This does not fall under the definition of U.S. legislation regarding whether or not a coup has occurred. That that legislation really refers to a military coup, which clearly this is not. Um, so I think the discussions about is this a coup, isn't this a coup, it's important to look at the law and to the Tunisian law and to see, you know, if he's taking extra legal action. But I do think we should kind of step back from the discussion of, you know, is the United States going, our State Department lawyers going to determine this is a coup? They're not. And I don't think they necessarily should. Or I don't think that actually is really important at this point. So one last question for you. As I kind of mentioned in when we started this conversation, Tunisia is a unique artifact of the Arab Spring. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it is this remaining vestige of a lot of the hope and aspirations for what might have come out of a pretty pivotal moment in a region that has faced immense challenges and continues to face immense challenges. And a lot of those aspirations and hopes have have fallen by the wayside, except for Tunisia up to this point. What does this crisis mean or could it mean for the legacy of the Arab Spring and the role that Tunisia plays within it? I think it's really important that we don't kind of use this case of Tunisia, what's happening right now, to say that democracy is dead in the Arab world or that it's dead in Tunisia. Uh, you know, I think that when we look at, certainly there are some anti-democratic measures taking place in Tunisia, but the fact that people are out there, whether it's on social media or they're not really in the streets now because of the curfew, but, you know, people can can criticize this. They can call this a coup without fear of going to jail. That's a really big deal. You know, that is democracy at work. The fact that you do have debate, the fact that you do still, you know, technically have a parliament, that you do have technically a judicial system. Again, we'll see what happens over the next 30 days. But I don't think Tunisian democracy is dead. Tunisian democracy has faced many challenges over the past decade, including very brutal challenges that resulted in assassinations in 2013. And they got democracy back on track. You know, I'm optimistic. I, I believe that Tunisian civil society 
is very powerful. They are some of the most impressive civil society activists globally. And I think that there's still enough voices in Tunisia who want democracy to succeed and are willing to fight for that. I think there's a lot of people that are giving Saeed the benefit of the doubt for now. And we'll see again, we can revisit this in at the end of the 30-day period. But I haven't given up on Tunisian democracy. I don't think we should. And I, I don't think that it's necessarily, frankly, that helpful for us to try to place this in the broader Arab world. Tunisia has been a unique case since day one. They started the Arab Spring and they pretty much were the Arab Spring, you know, when it came down to it in the end. And, you know, the Tunisian revolution is still alive. And I think we're going to continue to see a lot play out and a lot change over the next 30 days. And with the hope that that Tunisia returns or is strengthened and, you know, returns to its democratic path. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there for now. Sarah Yerkes, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. Also, to gain access to an ad-free version of our podcast and other benefits, consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Hamza Shatu of Good Rodeo and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.